Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Christina Flanagan and Michael Lerner. Christina Flanagan, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. It's a pleasure. Privilege. You know, I sat down this morning and made a short list of all the things I wanted to talk with you about. So it's going to be a full uh, period here that we have. But I, here's where I thought I'd start. You have two daughters and one, one grandson. One grandson. Yes. So here's where I thought, if someday after you and I are both wherever we will go after this, uh, your grandson and your daughter is gathered for him to listen to this talk for mm -hmm. the first time. Yeah. What would you like him to know about you? I, where's the hanky? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would hope he would think I was funny. Okay. <laughs> that would be the most important thing. Uh, funny how? Well, funny in every way, you know. Um, uh, I, I've shared this with you before. My, one of my favorite sayings, and I wish I knew who said it, was if you're not laughing, you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really, I think that's true. Um, the, the teachers that I have had in my life all had a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that the risk of taking yourself too seriously is, is deadly. And, um, uh, and so I would hope Charlie thinks that about me even now. You know, it's funny because I don't think of you as funny. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> no, I think of you as, I think of you, I mean, let's just start where we start. You say that you feel like we have a, a brother-sister relationship. Okay. So, and we've been taking walks on the Bolinas Mesa for, for 10, 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. And so <clears throat> we have a very deep relationship. But I would not have picked funny as the first thing. Yeah, but have you ever taken a walk with me where we didn't have a belly laugh? That's true. That's what I'm saying. Okay, that's true. It's just interesting that funny is where you start. I'm just Yeah, but well, it's, it's my, one of my highest values. You uh -huh. know, uh, the other day, Charlie is a very fussy baby, and uh, my kids aren't sleeping, and it's hard. They're brave, they're good, but they're, it's hard. And so the other night, Caitlin was trying to get a, a sleep, and it was twilight, and I told Andrew, Charlie's dad, that I was gonna take him on a, on a stroller push up, up terrace, and... Uh, and so we put him in, and pretty quickly he was calmed down, because, you know, they do. And I thought, well, what can I sing him? And, well, I only know th three songs. The 15th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the Ganapati Stutram, and the Rudram. And so I sang him Sanskrit <laughs> as we're going. And I'm thinking, you know, if anybody saw us, they would think this is really strange. So you know? I'm going to ask you to do something daring. Yeah. Would you please sing us what you sang him? Yeah. Well, it's too long, but I can start. Start it, yeah. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha 
Urvavumulamadashakam Ashvatam Prahuravyayam Chandam Siyasiparnani Yastam Veda Saveda Vite. Beautiful. Yeah. What does that mean? Really? Uh, basically, it's the, uh, the, the world is like the upside down people tree. P P P E O P L E, not, not like people, but the, the tree, the, the fig tree, the banyan. And uh, so the roots are in the sky and the leaves are on the ground. And it's the 15th, it's the beginning of the 15th chapter of the Gita. And it's to uh, put us in right place with reality. Uh, it's, the 15th chapter is about the nourishment that we take in. And, it's in, and you say it in, before you eat a meal. And at the ashram that I used to hang out in, we always sang it. Um, the, the very end of it is a blessing for the food. Brahmarpanam Brahma Habihi, Brahma Agnal Brahma Nahutam, Gantavyam, Brahma Karma Samarina, which is to bless the source of the food, the hands that pick the food, the fire that cooks the food, the hands that serve the food. All of that be blessed. So that's all, it's a so we go from the people tree, which shows us that the nourishment is divine, the reality is essential, and then all parts are, uh, are the blessing of our nourishment. And so I, I do it in the morning when I feed my dogs. And by the time I'm done with the 15th chapter, I give them their dog food. <laughs> so what can I tell you? You know, um, I'm glad that you started this way because um, you know that one of the topics that interest me that I've shared with you is the quite high uh, probability of some form of civilizational collapse due to all the interactive environmental, social, economic, political factors that, yeah. you know, people mostly think it's just climate change, but actually there's like 12, 25 different factors interacting and the um, you know, most civilizations do end and the prospects for a civilizational collapse are quite great. So the tribe of people that I hang out with who study civilizational collapse uh, are all, you know, saying, well, how do we help people with their grief and so on and so forth? And I was reminded of a quote that I think is from Rumi that says, fear is the cheapest seats in the house. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, because, you know, I too hung out with a spiritual teacher, Swami Satchidananda, and the way he held the possibility of civilizational collapse, again, it was like with this lightness. Yeah. He'd kind of chuckle and say, well, at some point he's going to reshuffle the deck, isn't right. it? You know? uh, yeah. And so what that reminded me of is that in the Gita, which as we both know, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the great Hindu text, um, uh, Krishna uh, uh, speaking to Arjuna on the battlefield of life. Right. Uh, you know, Arjuna doesn't want to fight. Right. These are all my relatives. Right. I'm going to go to hell. I'm yep. going to go to hell. How could I possibly do this? And Krishna says, no, They're already dead. you have to do it. You know? Uh, you know, you can't kill anybody. They can't kill you. You know, uh, and so, but the point is that in the iconography of Krishna, mm -hmm. he is dancing mm -hmm. over the world right. with the world under his feet. Mm -hmm. So that line that you have about how you hold it, that if you're not laughing, 
you're not paying attention. Do you hold that from kind of the Krishna consciousness perspective and so Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My Swami Dayananda Saraswati was my um, was my Mahaguru. He's gone now, but uh, he was the funniest man you ever met. Mm-hmm. And he, he taught us this. That uh, it, and it's not to be callous at all. No. He was one of the most compassionate people I ever knew. Um, and a man with great principles uh, about action and what you're to do. But at the end of the day, um, the way he tells that story is, you know, Arjuna has thrown down his arrows and he said, I'm a man of peace, I cannot do this, I'm a man of principle, plus which those are my teachers I'm going to kill, which I can't do anyway. And Krishna shakes his head and he says, man, are you kidding? You have spent your entire life becoming the greatest warrior there ever was or will be. And now when it's showtime, mm-hmm. you're walking off the stage? I don't think so. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was the point of your life? He literally says, what was the point of your life if you were not going to fight? And, you know, you, you think of Hinduism and ahinza, you know, non, non-violence and all that. Well, it's not about being mamby-pamby. It's about knowing, having a perspective about your place and your responsibility, and then, you know, laughing all the way to the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yes, I think it's, it is part of that sensibility um, where, that says, you know, if I really have perspective on who I am, um, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. You know what? Yeah. Tell us more about your teacher. Who was he? What was his name? And Swami Dayananda Saraswati. Uh, he uh, was from south, southern part of India, and um, Chinmayananda was his teacher, and he had the good fortune of being a journalist back in the time of partition and all that. And so his English was perfect. He had really stunning command of English. In fact, English and Urdu uh, were his languages. Uh, he was better at them than he was in Hindi, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, he would never speak without goofing on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he uh, came up to uh, Rishikesh in the Himalayas um, before the Beatles, you know, before, uh, before uh, um, what's his name? The Maharshi, not, not Maharshi, uh, Maharish, Maharaj. Maharaj, right? He came there and uh, started a little tiny hut and people came and by the time he died he was um, uh, the guide the guidance for about half a dozen ashrams in India and the US he had started a, uh, a strong program um, in the poor regions for the education of children and girls and and health things and he had uh, trained a bunch of uh, young students in uh, the Gita uh, he was not a, uh, a teacher who taught us meditation. You hear a lot about ashrams where you go and you learn meditation or yoga or something like this. He taught Vedanta. And, and Vedanta, he taught what? Vedanta. And yeah. so he was part of, you know how like you have Franciscans and Benedictines and this and that. He was Saraswati. Saraswati is the, is the god that uh, rules over, lang- over knowledge and, and music actually. And so this lineage goes back to uh, the year 700 or so. 
And uh, there was a young, um, brilliant scholar who taught Vedanta, asked us to really think about the question of who am I? And so all of our classes, all of our retreats, were camps where we, where Swami Dhananda would pick a, a phrase out of the Gita or whatever, any of the, the scriptural texts of India, and spend a week going over 12 words with us and unpacking them in a meaningful way so that we could see what's what. And You uh, learned Sanskrit in order to... I did. I, I didn't. I wouldn't say I learned it, but I studied it for three years, um, as a, uh, in order to have more access to what uh, Swamiji was teaching, because he would he would use the Sanskrit terms, and we would have to struggle with what they meant. Clearly, you can chant it. Yeah, yeah. I have a good musical ear, mm-hmm. and um, you're yeah. also a Vedic astrologer. Yeah, the Jyotish, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does Vedic astrology relate to Swami Dayananda and your studies with him? Well, the uh, Jyotish, the uh, Hindu astrology, came first. Oh, okay. And uh, it was through my Jyotish teacher that I met Dayananda. I see. And the way that worked was um, I, I, I had an interest in um, cosmology and... Uh, and I had an, uh, an appreciation that there are more forces at work in a given life than what you can see or experience directly, that there's much more going on. And so I, I, I discovered that, that Jyotish had really grappled with that and got a teacher and uh, learned a lot. And he uh, gave us... Uh, some Sanskrit with the idea that by learning that we would attract a teacher. And then he took us to Dayananda's ashram in Rishikesh. And, and I did not meet Dayananda at that time. I met one of his students. And this fellow um, answered all the questions I'd had that I'd, that I'd collected up to that point. And so I thought, well, I need to investigate this more. And so Dayananda was also a lover of Jyotish and, and fairly good at, him, at himself. So in Vedanta, uh, one of the principles that you come to is that things are neither real nor not real. So he would use like the table and he would said, say this, this seeming table is made of seeming molecules, is made of, you know, seeming space of infinite distance. Is it a table? Well, my hand says it's a table. If I get to the bottom of it, maybe not. And he says, so that is, there's a Sanskrit word for that called um, uh, mitya, uh, meaning that it exists and it doesn't exist. And in the mitya universe, jyotish is a tremendous tool in understanding your place and your obligations and your duties. Dhananda used to say, if, if people lived by their duty, there would be no need for rights. He would mock us Westerners for our human rights concerns. He says, this is foolishness. It's arrogant and it's violent. Because my rights means your loss. However, if I live by my duty, my duty as a mother, my duty as a grandmother, my duty as a friend, my duty as a daughter, my duty as a sister, you have no rights claims against me. 
Mm-hmm. And if okay. everybody did that, all would work. So the, the, the chart, the Vedic chart, will show you what your proclivities are and what you're supposed to be doing. So what does your Vedic chart tell you about yourself? Very lucky life. Tell me more. Very lucky life. Um, lucky in so many ways. Um, because it's also been a hard life. I don't think lucky means without harm. Okay. Look, you know, what, you, what's the meaning of luck if you didn't have a bad time? Certainly you've come through the fire. <laughs> it would not be luck. Certainly it, you've come through the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I have Mars in the Ascendant, which is the, the fiery planet that says, you know, I'm going to be healthy and strong and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And it looks at moon, which is the emotional life in a strong place in the fourth bhava. And that means that my heart will be broken constantly. Mm-hmm. And all that's true. And it gives my, uh, the ascendant of my chart is Saturn. And it sits in the place of greatest power uh, with, uh, that will give me the best teachers I could ever have. But that means I need to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And these planets uh, are in common, that there's a combination between Saturn and Lord Jupiter that gives me uh, financial security, but also uh, a, a sense of being separate from. Mm-hmm. That's always a painful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is related to the financial security. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're financially secure, you don't fit into the world very well because right. most people are not. So you struggle as. Everybody I know who's grown up with any wealth does struggle. Yeah. You've struggled with wealth. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, wealth is no, bl- is no blessing. You know, I didn't start off with security. We, yeah. we, we came from an impoverished background, both my parents in our early days. The financial well-being came, you know, later in life. But like anyone who's won the lottery, mm-hmm. uh, you learn quickly that, that money causes more problems than it solves. Yeah. You know? It but some in a way, you were deeply fortunate that you didn't come from wealth in the first place. Oh, indeed. I, well, I wouldn't be me. That's right. That's right. You, you, you were able to develop the fiber yeah. that is so hard to develop if you're born with wealth. Yeah, and, and this is also a Gita principle, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. a Gita principle? Yeah, that, you know, that kama, yeah. uh, enjoyment, yeah. is uh, all well and good. Uh-huh. But if not balanced right. by arta, yeah. hard work, yeah. it's like any other imbalance, it, it becomes a burden. So how, what, what was your father's story? How did he make his fortune? <clears throat> he broke his leg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Actually, my dad was from, from Albuquerque and uh, really from a, a difficult background, very poor very conflicted, uh, and he was a, uh, like many people from that neck of the woods, there was no problem he wasn't interested in. He was a, a problem solver. And, you know, there's a, there's a little story about him being on his pony, and he couldn't get through the gate, and so he starts working, he's like five years old, so he starts working on the gate and putting a latch at the top so he can stay on the pony so he can get through the gate without getting off the horse. That, whether it's true or not, this kind of mind he had. And um, he broke his leg when he was uh, 50 years old. And um, 
it wasn't healing and he didn't like plaster and he did it skiing. And he invented a, um, a cast that was like a, a ski boot, but filled with air hmm. that he could take on and off and go swimming and play golf. And um, not only did he heal, he changed orthopedic medicine. Wow. And did so- Did he have a background in medicine? None. He what just, was his background? Business. And uh, he knew how to, he was in manufacturing and he knew how to run a company. He knew how to, uh, so a principle he taught me early on is that the people that work with you are more important than you are always. Mm -hmm. And you have a tremendous responsibility to their well-being for everyone's, everyone's well-being. And um, so he knew how to build a business that way. And your mother? My mom was uh, born in Jackson Hole mm -hmm. in, the, in the Depression. Mm -hmm. And she also had a, a, a very difficult background. Um, extreme poverty and extreme violence. And uh, she was a strong lady. Um, she, you know, escaped really impossible circumstances and became sort of a glamorous young lady, worked for Pan American mm -hmm. on their first uh, 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 group of flight attendants. And my, my dad, who was a pilot in Miami, and um, they got married and- uh, Did you have siblings? I have a, a sister and a brother, yeah. Still alive? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And so what was it like for you uh, growing up uh, in that family? Well, I, it depends on, on when I look at it. Say in eighth grade. Eighth grade was just horrendous for everybody. But eighth grade was, the reason it was horrendous for me, and I think anybody that's an eighth grader, is by that time, uh, my folks had caught the ambition bug. Mm -hmm. um, we, they, they started our family with a lot of joy and humility, uh, where everyday things were super fun and important, you know, where my, my favorite meal was, uh, was uh, ripped up brown bread and white gravy, mm -hmm. you know, simple stuff, really well done. Mm -hmm. Uh, by eighth grade, we had... Where were you living? Uh, and that time, we were living in a little uh, uh, suburban outpost. It wasn't the, the height of suburbia. It was a little sort of uh, ex-urban place called Countryside in, Outside, in New Jersey. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. Yeah. And uh, by eighth grade, they had caught uh, a love of status mm -hmm. and moved us into more of the country club suburban New Jersey set, mm. which is where... They stayed, well, my mom died young, but it's where they, my dad stayed for the rest of his life. And so the values and principles and securities that I had known, say, as a fourth grader, by the time eighth grade goes, uh, were really gone. And I really struggled because I did not have um, identification in my heart with what was important to my friends. And so that, uh, you know, what Brene Brown is talking about now, about that need to belong versus the need to fit in, I was all about fitting in, and I couldn't, you know. 
and so the so that was uh, and, and you know within the family there wasn't a lot of support for that because mom and dad were on their way you know what was your first experience of um, spirit or transcendence or when did I guess when did God enter your life in some form? There was a specific date. I can remember it exactly. Okay. We it? were in that little house in countryside. I want to say I'm in the third grade, mm-hmm. second or third grade. And I'm um, uh, in, in the kids' bathroom downstairs, and I'm brushing my teeth. And I say, Chrissy Johnson, Chrissy Johnson, Chrissy Johnson, Chrissy Johnson. That was my name. And I disappeared. Mm. And all of time showed itself to me. Mm. And I thought, Chrissy Johnson, Chrissy Johnson. And it was, it, was a, it was a time warp, and I realized at that very moment there was no Chrissy Johnson, and yet here I was brushing my teeth. And that puzzled me until I met Dhananda, I'll be honest. It was, I was happy, I laughed, I thought, <laughs> there's so much here. And, and soon thereafter, I fell down and I uh, knocked the wind out of me, and I thought I was going to die because I didn't know from that. And and it wasn't that scary uh, because I'd done because that that vision had come. And did that vision stay with you? Uh, in other words, did the did the knowing of spirit or whatever word we want to use? Did it stay as a visible thread, or did it go underground uh, for a period of time? I would say, well, certainly eighth grade, it was missing in action. Mm -hmm. Um, But not long after that, Michael, um, I began asking questions about that vision. Maybe I wouldn't have called it that. But... I began to ask questions about meaning. And my parents had not raised us in religion. Uh, Both of my grandmas were sort of of the missionary variety. One was specifically a missionary in Japan, you know, know, helping the heathen. What what tradition was she in? Bible reading Baptist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she would teach English by reading the Bible and save their lives, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And she wasn't a very nice person, and so that didn't make much sense to me. And, And... so um, I began asking questions. So I would say it was never far from the surface. And then life being what it is, and having had, as I say, loving teachers, including my mother, around me all the time by my chart, uh, I could grab hold of that question and say, well, and someone would show up and say, well, try this. Who were you as a senior in high school? Um, I was kind of who I am now, mm. which would be a hidden leader. Mm. I had no capacity uh, for comfort in public situations, even though I was there often. My mother had died... Uh, when you were 15. When I was 15, yeah. so that would have been a year and a half earlier. And... Um, so my world had uh, shattered, but my abilities uh, were what they are today. And so people looked to me for leadership, 
but I had no inner joy in that uh, because it, it felt like, well, what do I know? Mm. And yet I do, and yet what do I know? And so it was a, it was a, a, a tough, uh, mm. tough place. One of the things you did for me was to send me a, a lovely a note that looked at your life um, in through uh, a series of uh, mythic personas. Mm -hmm. um, the first was Red Wing, the Sioux Squaw. Yeah. Uh, through Red Wing, I learned to read about horses, kachina dolls, sand paintings, corn ceremonies. The adoption of life as a young Indian girl somehow captured my parents' origins and set the stage for where and how I live today. The values which I aspired to were being part of an itinerant, intuitive community nourished by horses, ceremony, meaningful work, strong women, stoic men, wise elders, and sacred ties to the outdoors. Red Wing disappeared in grammar school, but her tastes remained with me. That's good. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Flanagan and Michael Lerner. But then the next leap in evolution was abrupt. When I was 15, my mother, who was the anchoring heart of our family, died of breast cancer. In those days, the adults felt it harmful to tell their kids about death, so we had no warning. No words can describe the crisis that came. At this point, my values were to survive using whatever tools I had at my disposal. Being a good student and taking Red Wing's adventurous, adventurous nature with me, I launched into college and life full bore and on my own. I sought power as Brunhilde now, laughing at loss, becoming a handmaiden to powerful men and institutions, my private moments of pain buried under the drive toward invulnerability. Also good, it's yeah. accurate. Yeah. And so, but bringing up Brunhilde, um, you've had a very deep relationship with music in general, but opera in specific. You, you uh, are on the board of the San Francisco Opera, the Santa Fe Opera. You are right in the middle of the... Of the, the ring. The ring cycle and have brought our friend and colleague Jennifer Stoll with you to that. Um, uh, let me start with something specific. Uh, what do you think of the ring cycle you and Jennifer are watching right now? <laughs> well, I'm, I feel sorry for anybody here who's not going. Uh, you know, I, I tend toward hyperbole, uh, but honest to Pete, you couldn't come. To, you couldn't have a better cast, a better level of performance a more relevant story uh, and a more exquisitely produced uh, adventure, right? I mean, it's really, it's really something those of us who have had the privilege of seeing it won't ever forget. It's truly something. It's something. And, um, you know, what I love about The Ring is it's always been available to the cultural moment that it's produced, you know, so the heinous vision of the um, young Nazis committing suicide at the end of Gotterdammerung as an act of worship. That happened. That's part of the ring's history. That heinous thing is as available as Brunhilde, uh, as the, the, the the champion feminine spirit 
who was released through pain to be the mother of a new order. Mm. They're both in it. Uh, right now, um, I'm reading this ring differently than I did when we did it uh, in 2011 at San Francisco uh, because I'm seeing it as the story of fear they, uh, and where fear comes from, where fear goes, what it is to be fearless, what is, what is it to attain fearlessness, what is it to be born fearless. And uh, what's on the other side of fear is love. And so it's, be, it's become less of a gender-specific conversation for me now than more of a heart conversation, watching all these players struggle with that. Mm. Um, and I'm so glad of it because, you know, big art has the responsibility of being relevant Truly. And, uh, you know, I like opera, but I love Wagner. Mm -hmm. Because Wagner was so complex and, and dreadful at many levels that he, he hung out in those dark places and was able to communicate them in ways that for me, being of Germanic background, it's just mother's milk. I, I, I feel my heart like listening to any Wagnerian opera at any point touches me mm. like nothing else. Yeah. So as you launched into college as Brunhilde, laughing at loss, becoming a handmaiden to powerful men and institutions, your private pain buried under the drive toward invulnerability, where were you in college? I was at Stanford mm. back in the 70s, 70 mm -hmm. to 74. Mm. And what was your experience there? <laughs> it was a mess. Uh, well, it was a different Stanford than it is now. So don't, you know, you can't even compare them. Um, that's when things began to break apart in my heart. And uh, it, it, was, it was extremely difficult. I felt alone and frightened and uh, my, my schoolwork was a bit of a, uh, a structure. What were you studying? Human biology, they were just getting onto it. it was the, I was in the first graduating, graduating class of human bio. So I had people like Jane Goodall as my professors, if you can imagine. Um, so I, I knew the work was really good. I knew it was interesting. I knew I was pretty good at it. Um, my, uh, you know, it was during those early 70s when we were all protesting the war and... Um, what did you imagine becoming? Uh, I, I didn't at first. Uh, what was most important to me at the time was becoming financially self-supporting. But why wasn't that a given, given that your family had money at that point? Self-supporting. Oh, self-supporting, okay. I wanted to be, break free of, of Wotan. Okay, yeah. I was, that was, I was wearing my Brunhilde okay. chaps at Got that it. time, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, and it seemed to me that, uh, you know, I asked around and it looked like I, I wanted to be helpful. I had a, a, a desire to help people and that getting an MSW was going to be the fastest way to a 
self-supporting paycheck Mm -hmm. and still get the job done. And so I went to Smith uh, to do that after I graduated. And just to keep the life trajectory going along with the spiritual biography, what happened after you got your LCSW at Smith? Well, I started, I began, I started work um, at a pastoral counseling center, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a quick job before then, but from that job, I, I met a guy who was, who introduced me to pastoral counseling. And um, where, were, where were you working? My, my first job was, uh, I started a counseling center at Williams College uh-huh. uh, in the basement of St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh-huh. And... You know, the idea, this was quite revolutionary in 1976, that spirit and mind uh, cohabitated. And, and if you were feeling a sickness in your heart, we needed to work at both things. So that's where that got So going. how were you experiencing spirit through college and Smith, through Stanford and Smith, and then into your pastoral counseling? What form was spirit taking in your life? Refuge. Refuge. Refuge from what? Uh, Sort of terror about how to live. You know, you'll remember this was during Watergate. This was, we were still on the tail end of uh, nuclear worries. Uh, the, the whole social order was broken up, and I felt my dad had remarried about a month after I left uh, left home, and so I really felt that I didn't know how to work in this world. Mm-hmm. And so, if it was going to Mem Chu at Stanford Memorial Chapel, or writing poetry, or listening to Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. um, that was refuge from trying to figure out how to make a friend, um, which I, was very difficult for me. I have zero friends from those times. I have one gra- graduate school friend, but even she and I uh, were unable to maintain a friendship because uh, our, our, the friendships just didn't quite catch the longing that was in my heart. And so at some point or other, I had to move on. So no friends through college and graduate school? I mean, acquaintances, I was busy. But that that thing that you and I have or that my friends in my current life and I have, that ability to connect at depth. No, I deeply get it. I deeply get it. It was just not there. But back to the question of, you said refuge. Yeah. But did you have a sense if somebody asked you, then, uh, how you experienced your spiritual life, did you have a, an answer of any kind other than refuge? In other words, did it take a form? Were you in a tradition of some kind that spoke to you? Um, well, I would think Memorial Church, Davy Napier was the, uh, is the leader. Of, uh, he later, I think, started, was working at, uh, in Berkeley at the seminary. Uh-huh. He made it okay to be Christian. Okay. Um, there was no other tradition that that I would have thought that you of. Would have connected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can remember meeting some folks that were doing uh, Buddhist practice, and it made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Davy Napier showed me that um, that your actions count. 
So what happened after you did this, the pastoral counseling center at Williams? Well, in what time frame? Just give us, what's the next chapter? Well, it was, that was my practice. Yeah. Um, I, I married up there and, and my husband and I moved to New Jersey and, and then we, our marriage didn't last very long. And uh, I began to work um, at a big hospital in my old hometown, actually, in New Jersey. Uh, Who did you marry? Uh, his name was uh, Bruce Bramlett. And he was the curate of the church huh. at that time, the, the assistant to the head pastor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, bless his sweetheart. He's gone on to have a good life, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I, I was no help to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he gave me, uh, he gave, through his associations, I got to get involved in the Episcopal Church in a way that I'm grateful to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a, a big time for them. They were rewriting their prayer book to be more contemporary. They were uh, ordaining women. Mm-hmm. And so, as is their tradition, they were breaking ground. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I did that. But, but I did pastoral counsel, counseling you know, for another 10 years, probably even after mm-hmm. I was working at the hospital. You said values based on ambition eventually crashed for me when my own pain couldn't be covered. This near the end of undergraduate years, inspired by Carl Jung and the spiritual roots of human strivings, I decided to become a psychotherapist. Though Red Wing and Brunhilde were still there, I would say Sophia now emerged, giving birth to wisdom, compassion, connection, and meaning. The archetypal mother, Sophia, directed the next several decades of my life though often subordinating her wisdom to others. As for formal spiritual evolution, I would say I was fortunate to have no particular affiliation. My grandmothers were the fundamentalist sort. My parents weren't interested. At 26, I married an Episcopal priest, mostly because I felt some sort of transformative yearning. Marriage didn't last, mostly because of my own restlessness, but the love of church and liturgy kept me pursuing that path for many years. My clinical practice was pastoral counseling, working with the spiritual strength of my patients. I married again and then had two wonderful daughters. That marriage ended because my husband was not truly attracted to women as to men, a painful revelation for all of us, which has now healed. So, um, yes. Lucky me. Lucky you. I say, I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's hardly... There's hardly a life experience in privileged white America mm-hmm. that I haven't been able to uh, say, yeah, I, I know about that. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a walk with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This reversal brought with it the same kind of emotional and spiritual crisis which upended the teenage years. The values I pursued, relief from pain at any cost, numbing myself to life's difficulties, finally bankrupting my relationships, work, life, and physical well-being are familiar to anyone who has plunged deep into darkness. Not being a young ingenue, the damage done was much more severe, affecting all who loved and knew me. Persephone gone to the underworld. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's an archetype I absolutely identify yeah. with. Yeah. You know, you're, there you are, you're, you're picking flowers with your mom, Demeter, and all of a sudden, there's a hole in the ground, and you can't but fall. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, Persephone survives it. She leaves a few, you know, uh, pomegranate seeds down there. So she has to go back every now and then. But um, it, you know, again, I say lucky. I can think of um, my my third husband was a um, was a psychopath. He was similar to the person that's running the country right now. Uh, and, and in fact, I get. I get echoes, even like photographic echoes of the face and the stat and the, the stance, you know, and even of the of the, of 45's wife. Um, I look, I see myself that kind of numbness. Um, but what he did for me is he he took me to, to the place where I could actually live the pain that I had only felt up to that point, if you know what I mean. It was a, and this is the thing about myth, this is the thing about Brunhilde, frankly. It's one thing to, uh, to feel pain, to grieve, to do psychotherapy with it, to try to, to get with it. But some of the lucky ones survive creating it for others <laughs> to actually make it. And so, for instance, when I was uh, in that psychopathic um, bardo, I abandoned my elder daughter in the same way that my mother died. One day I was her mother, and the next day I kicked her out. Mm -hmm. And and she was 14. Mm -hmm. Same age you were. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, and I couldn't but do it. There was no way. There was. I didn't have a choice. I had to. And the pain. I remember when my mom died. What hurt me the most when my mom died was that I that she was in so much pain that she couldn't be with us. I wasn't so worried about me. I was just heartsick that we, who she loved so much, couldn't be with her now. And I created that. I, I, I expelled my child and then for the next six months to a year lived that pain of having rejected her. And, and I couldn't but do it. That's the thing. And, you know, I will never um, be able to make up for what I did. Um, but I... I'm also, um, I'm not sentimental because really bad things really do happen. And I am a perpetrator in those really bad things that happened. And so sentimentality doesn't work for me because I, I, I can remember when I first heard about EMDR, the um, rapid eye movement mm -hmm. healing that this gal, Francine Shapiro, uh, created. She was a, a neurologist. She created it to help Vietnam vets get over what they had done. Mm -hmm. And what was the most important in their healing was to acknowledge that they had done it. Mm -hmm. 
and that the therapist equally could have done it. <coughs> that that, that number... What, that's what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, you know. I know. You know, yeah. his wonderful poem about uh, being able to imagine that he is the pirate boarding the small boat Absolutely. off Vietnam. Absolutely. And, you know, Absolutely. killing the men Ab and raping the women. And, absolutely. And, you know, I have always felt that about myself. I mean, I just absolutely know that I could do it's really in us. terrible things. And I, and I find it strange that not everybody knows that about I mean, not too strange, because we're all different points on the Enneagram. For exactly, one. there's that too. Yeah, but, um, but I have always known, and I always say, I am a radically imperfect human being. Who was given some useful skills, mm -hmm. but don't put me on a pedestal Thank you. because I don't do well there for myself. Exactly. I won't do the well there for you. I am one more struggling pilgrim on the path, right? And for you know, reals. Yeah, and that's the deal. Yeah. Well, it is the deal, and yeah. you know, um, for those of us who have uh, survived. Um, in, uh, who, has, who have survived as in we're still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, these, uh, these histories of wrongdoing mm -hmm. on our own part, uh, to acknowledge that gives somebody else who's in the middle of it, mm -hmm. you know, the thought that they don't have to hate themselves for what they did. That, you know, that that's what humans do. It brings up the Rumi poem, mm -hmm. beyond all ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field, I will meet you there. Exactly, dear. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's Rocky. It could be Rumi. Yeah, but, but there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So you've spoken of this in distanced form. Is there any uh, snippet of the actual experience that you could share that would give us a sense of what you were actually living through? I would say that you see it every day, mm -hmm. uh, truly. Uh, I'll go on a limb and say that, that um, I, I was in a world where I can remember my, my husband saying to me, this is not the children's father, remember, but there was one moment where I was trying to get well and he was in a rage because he relied on me to be there to support his deviance. His what? Deviance. Mm -hmm. And um, he said to me, you cannot choose your daughter over me because she will, leave, she will leave you and I will always be here. And that made sense to me. Uh, he had convinced me that I was, uh, it, we used Bonnie and Clyde as an example of mm -hmm. our relationship, or Ike and Tina Turner, mm -hmm. where his capacity to be fearless and daring was based on my submission to his every will and every whim. 
And so he couldn't survive without me. And so he, he would turn it around and say, you can't survive without me. And he would do it in ways that I was certain that was true. And when, so when I look at like the present political conversation and there are people who truly in their deepest hearts feel hope because this person's in charge. Finally, they, they have someone that really gets what's going on with their pain. Because the pain I brought into this marriage was more than I could stand. After, after Dan and I split uh, because he was gay, I was beyond recovery. I had to f- stop the bleeding somehow. And I was alone in the world with it. And this, this Fengali shows up who says, I got it. I got you. Just do what I ask you to do every time, all the time, every way, any day. And you'll be fine. I said, thank God. And there are people all over this country who are in that place. You know, I'm so glad you're saying that because one of... um One of my, uh, how can I say this? Hillary Clinton gave a um, graduation speech recently, and she Mm -hmm. talked about the need for radical empathy. Yeah. And most people take that to mean empathy for the very poor, the immigrants, and so on, which I profoundly share. But in the progressive bubble that we're in, Almost nobody feels empathy for the people who, uh, this is my in their point. pain, are supporting Trump. And more than supporting, he's right. Yeah. I them. mean, I, when I was married to this man, if he had taken a gun to, and shot someone on Fifth Avenue, I would say probably good idea. Right. I mean, I mean Trump our, literally our, said. I know, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Our wedding yeah. present to each other was a body bag. Because we said that we would kill each other before we spoke openly about our relationship. Wow. It was a blood pact forever. Wow. And he's been dead for um, 11 years Mm. by his own hand. Mm -hmm. And here I am. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this exists. This level of human need and depravity as they meet. It absolutely exists because I've been there. And I was there for six years and my children with me. And um, this is why I say I'm so lucky. Yeah. Because I- And you have two strong girls who love you. uh, It's it's an unbelievable gift from God that that we have, uh, what they they say, Because it's hard not to um, go into morbid regret and shame when I'm with their beautifulness and um, wanting to redo or undo. And they say, you know, Mama, she's dead. We like you. And, And there's a way that it's really true. But that's true forgiveness, isn't it? And it's unsentimental reality. Right, right. On the, on the day I was freed from this monster, I, I drove home. I had, he was going to kill me. And I had escaped to the city 
uh, with a false name and identity. It was a big drama. And I, um, I, I, I went to our apartment in the city, and he was having sex with some barfly that he had picked up. And my world sort of shattered open. I could see what was in front of me now. And I drove home. And I got home, and the, there were some contractors working on a project I was, had going, and they said, oh, gosh, uh, we're so sorry. I said, I know, it's been terrible. Oh, what? And I, said, I said, well, what? And they said, well, we're so sorry. We just discovered a dead fawn mm. up by the labyrinth. Mm. And I take it as, as such a deep meaning yes. that um, that sweet girl I had been, that spirit that that ended up in, you know, in the darkest place, was now released, and I would have to build from there. Mm. And um, the and the deer is my uh, totem mm -hmm. in my Hindu astrology uh, moon sign. Release. And so it was deeply meaningful to me that that mm. was that this little fawn uh, showed me it was okay to be released. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you rebuild from there? Slowly. What? Slowly. 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 Very slowly. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Flanagan and Michael Lerner. What was the first light? It's a really good question, actually. Because I loved this person. I loved this person more than I loved anything on earth or anyone. So I had to break down a bit more mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. I think it took about two years to... Um, to test the waters of being a human being. So things had to keep breaking. I can remember a girlfriend of mine took me to a, a, a rock and roll concert down at the shoreline. And I was thinking, well, maybe I need a new boyfriend. That'll make me better. And I looked around, and all the men looked like creatures from another planet <laughs> that I had nothing to do with. Nothing. And I thought, well, that's, that, this is a real problem. <laughs> I put that aside, and uh, <clears throat> I got involved in a uh, three-year affair with a young guy, a um, guy much younger than I, very passionate kind of affair, and uh, he killed himself in front of me. And um, I think that was the event where I had to completely surrender my notions hmm. of what was going to help me. Because I had, because here I wasn't, you know, I, I thought I was rebuilding, and in fact, hmm. here we are. And I was surrounded at that time by a host of friends 
who I had uh, come to know and love. And, and they just held me um, until I could get on. Hmm. It took quite a while. They're still in my life as my deepest friends. Hmm. And so I think that's... The light, it was, it was still a spinning top, you know, that, that image of the surfer who goes down thinking that he's seeing the sun. It was, that was me for the, for the first several years. Patrick died in 2005. And by that time... It's 13 years ago. Yeah. By that time, my Hindu astrology practice had gotten pretty strong. I was doing that all this time that I was, the, the Hindu astrology practice started around 2000. I'd been studying a little bit when I was married to my third husband, but I really took it seriously in 2000. And by that time, I was getting a working knowledge of karma, not only in my life, but in my husband's life, in other lives. And um, and so I was somewhat, you know, I think structure supports creativity and healing. And so I was getting some some sense of how this had all come to pass. And then with Patrick's death, I, I felt that I could be one among many and be supported by my loved ones. Mm. And, uh, and that turned out to be true. You used the word surrender. And, you know, I experienced that. I mean, I'm a deep student of the Sufi tradition. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, the traditions that have opened for me are Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, and Sufi. Those mm-hmm. are the five paths that have informed my walk, you know. Right. And, uh, and of course, the Sufi path is the path of love. And, well, so is Christianity for that matter. But, um, but the Sufis have this great notion that the friend with a small F leads to the friend with a big F. I think it's so true. That's yeah. so beautiful, Michael. It is such a beautiful that is my, teaching. That is my, is my absolute experience. Yeah. And so it seems to me that because the friend with a small F is human. Right. And therefore, as James Hillman says, we're each a boarding house of different subpersonalities. You bring two of them together. Mm-hmm. And at first you're all seeing each other's shiny subpersonas, but then yeah. you have to deal with the whole boarding house ultimately. Right. Right. And so that means that built into human love or friendship is pain and yep. suffering and Thank loss. Yep. So what are you going to do with that? You know, what are you going to love that you can depend on? And the answer for at least some of us is the divine, you know, and that in fact we get the hint of that because in the human love, if you're fortunate, you can recognize that the person that you experience as transcendent is actually serving as a portal for you to the divine. And therefore, if you can make it to the divine, it can enable you to hold whatever friendships or love relationships you have um, in the security of of a love that will not fail you, of a, of a divine spirit that won't fail you. I somewhere. actually see it somewhat differently. You do? Tell yeah. Me, um, because w- w- one of the great good fortunes in my life mm-hmm. 
is all the mistakes I have made mm -hmm. that have caused so much trouble. And so, and as we said, I had difficulty making friends. Mm -hmm. and, and so that complete failure as a human concern, mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I discovered that there were other people who were honest enough about their complete failure as a human concern. Mm -hmm. Somehow I wasn't alone with being a failure. I get it. And so efforting to be better got cast out the window. Mm -hmm. I had completely betrayed everything mm -hmm. that is holy to me today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or that was holy to me as a child, as to, to a Red Wing. Mm -hmm. And I found these people that had the same experience. Mm. And so we didn't have a lot of choice but to say, uh, well, mm -hmm. what's bigger than we are? Mm -hmm. and, and where is it in us? And, and where has it always been in us? Well, that's beautiful, and they're just different paths to the divine. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah that, but that's I, why I, I say I different. One from yeah, you, yeah. and I totally get what you're saying. And we've had those different experiences, yeah. um, but but what you're describing, and I think, you know, what I think actually, <laughs> I think that yours is, um, in some ways, a stronger path than mine because, and I've seen this in other friends. Um, when one has gone down into the darkness as far as you did, uh, and you, you find that something that's greater that brings you to the light, I think it brings you further into the light than my path has brought me. And I don't say that putting my own path down. I'm just fine with my path. But uh, I, I really feel that, in other words, I experience you I'm going to leave aside the fact that I think you're brilliant, that I think you uh, have this wide range of capacities, that I think you're very deep. Um, I'll leave all that aside. But I experience you, you as one of the most ethical human beings I know. And I'm not a particularly ethical <laughs> human being. I mean, you know, I've got other skills. And strengths, but ethics is not one of my strongest ones. And I, mean, I don't say that in a negative no, way. No, I know, I, mean, I get to do you. do the work I do, mm -hmm. you know, there has to be some, um, you know, there uh -huh. has to be a little darkness mixed in with right, the light right, just to get right. through the day. Right, you know? exactly. But, but for me, my experience of you is that you, you are deeply ethical, and I experience that as an expression of how, how far down you went and how, in coming up, you needed to be completely different from, as your daughter said, the person who died. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's, yeah. that's definitely yeah. true. Um, yeah. I would challenge again what you're, how you're, des you're describing us relative to each other by saying this is the Enneagram conversation. It is the Enneagram. Now, you always thought you were a two, but you've discovered you're a seven. Yeah. And that fascinates me because you don't look like a seven to me, but, you know, I take your word for it. Well, I, um, 
That's interesting, too. Um. <laughs> we, we should do a little parenthesis here. The Enneagram, for listeners who don't know, and those in the audience who don't know, is a, a deep depth archetypal psychology with nine points around it uh, of nine basic personality types, um, which consist of, number one, the perfectionist, two, the helper, three, the performer, four, the... Um, uh, tragic, romantic, or the... Um, the melancholy one, the, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is the word they usually use for four? It's... Uh, individualist. The individualist, right. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> Classic four. <Yeah. laughs> there you go, girl. Five, the observer, which is me. Six, the, uh, the loyalist. Seven, the enthusiast. Eight, the iconoclast. Nine, the peacemaker, yeah, right? right? And so this was brought to the West by the spiritual teacher Gurdjieff, uh, Oscar Ichazo, a mystic in, was it Peru or Chile that Ichazo came? Chile? Yeah. So Oscar Ichazo picked it up, made it into an anagram of personality, taught it to Claudio Naranjo, a psychiatrist from Chile who brought it to the Bay Area and taught Helen Palmer and A.H. Almas and right. the whole cluster of it. It was a secret teaching for a long time. Right. Then the secrecy broke down. Now it's widely disseminated was taught at Stanford, is used widely in, uh, in Christian divinity schools. Uh, you know, yes, Richard Rohr mm -hmm. is a great uh, Enneagram teacher. Mm -hmm. Christian Enneagram and so on. So what I love about it, of all the archetypal psychologies I've ever studied, is that it provides me with more information than any other archetypal psychology. And what I particularly love is that it fits perfectly with the Kabbalistic tree of life perfectly with the seven deadly sins of Catholicism plus two they lost, closely with Dante's circles of hell, mm -hmm. and this is the one that blows me away, perfectly with the lands Ulysses visits on his way home from Troy yep. in the same order as the Enneagram, yep. Yep. and closely with the Diagnostic Psychiatric Manual. And never mind yeah. sacred math. And never, yes. So, and never mind sacred math, my friend Chris Wurtenbaker's mm -hmm. book on the Enneagram, which mm -hmm. I gave to you and it blew you away. Completely. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so that's like a little sort of synopsis of when we refer to Enneagram. And Christina is much more knowledgeable about Enneagram than I am. I've just been passionate about it for three years. And, <laughs> and which, which husband taught you Enneagram? The, the psychopath. The psychopath, yeah. And that's why I knew which myself. Which to show, right? Well, that's why I knew yeah. myself to be at a point that I'm not. Yeah. Because he wanted you because to be a two. Because he needed me to be a two. To be a two. Was and, he an eight? Yeah. Like, he, was, oh, he, yeah. he is covered in Helen Palmer's first book. He was part yeah. of the initial uh, eight cohort. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. He was in that cohort. Yeah, yeah, and he taught the Enneagram. And he was oh, uh, he was a re very deeply respected teacher of the Enneagram. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But now you're, you discovered you're seven. Only recently did you Because <coughs> I read um, yeah. the um, Naranjo book recently, Enneatype Structures. And in that book, he he's not so much talking about how we act in the world, but sort of what's the existential crisis for each point. Mm -hmm. And it came very clear to me that it is this search for meaning, this in, that my, what you called being a gypsy, my serial enthusiasms, mm -hmm. that, that have guided me Really, from the beginning. I haven't called you a gypsy. Yes, you did. You did in the uh, little thing in the beginning. The, the thing that you put out. For, really? Yeah. 
No, because somewhere, something of a gypsy. And I accept it. I, I think it's a good example. It's a good word for me. But that, that much, I mean, there are times when I've been helpful, but really what motivates me is planning the next, the, the next thing. Mm. And that's, that's where I got that. Yeah. So what is the next thing? Let me share something you said at dinner last night. Thank you. We had dinner with my wife, Cheryl, last night. And one of the beauties is that Christina and my wife, Cheryl, share this deep love of animals. And Christina lives with this menagerie of... Tell us what the menagerie is before I go on. Yeah, so I have three horses, a donkey and a mule, uh, three dogs, and probably a dozen birds, birds in cages, uh, doves and finches and... Canary, and I and I live in a, a beautifully uh, wide open place outside Santa Fe. Outside of Santa Fe, yeah. Where you had dinner for me and my colleague Ron Slasberg when we visited you, and we went with you to see Aaron Stern at the Center for the Love of Learning. Exactly. And Jennifer Stoll, our colleague and friend, had introduced uh, me to Aaron, who came and did a new school conversation right. here. So this was a return visit to Aaron. And uh, the Center for the Love of Learning outside of Santa Fe is kind of like Commonweal in some ways, which is why Jennifer wanted us to get together. So, uh, it, um, And Aaron was the love of Leonard Bernstein's life. Right. And um, so we went there and we sat with him and I had the inspiration to ask Aaron, who's a composer and pianist, to play something oh for us. Oh my God, us. it was something. So he played the um, piece that Leonard Bernstein had composed for him. He played a piece that he had composed on his father's death. Mm. And then he, uh, uh, he played a, a, a free form piece that reminded us both of Keith Jarrett, yeah. who is an extraordinary, uh, uh, spontaneous, uh, uh, and... Um, In response to our time together. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so anyway, at dinner, in this beautiful house in which you live, um, you gathered uh, four other friends of yours, and Oren and me, um, <coughs> And there were a total of eight of us, so mm -hmm. five, five other, other friends. friends yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the people you gathered. One was the, uh, what's it called, a cultural... Uh, a cultural anthropologist and cartographer. Right, who's traced the neighborhoods of Santa Fe, Latino, brilliant Latino man. His partner, who is a political consultant for That's progressive right. people. That's right, right. Your friend, who is a horse whisperer, two uh, there's two he he but well they both are they're both horse yep. whisperers mm -hmm. of a couple yep and then the fifth person was, was uh, uh, Ted uh, Harrison <coughs> who runs Commonweal Conservancy mm -hmm. named after Commonweal here because he had met uh, Michael some years ago and he was looking for a a, a name that would bring people together to do disparate things for the common good. And yeah. so you then purchased a piece of land in this... In that conservancy. Conservancy, and were quite critical to pulling off, making the whole thing so work, because it, it was right on the edge of yep. not so working. It seems. And so you took me and Oren out to this piece of land where you're going to build a rammed 
earth house with rammed earth from the site. That's right. And you're going to take your whole menagerie, sell the house near Santa Fe, and move out into the middle of nowhere where you plan to spend uh, this next period of your life. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 longing for uh, uh, quiet and um, and a slower pace than I've had up to now, which isn't unusual. Um, and so that's what I'm doing, really. I'm just uh, I'm just feeling like it's it's time to um, bring it in. Uh, and so that's the next thing. Hmm. That's the next plan. It seems very juicy to me. Hmm. I want to very quietly open this up. Um, and I'm going to actually start with Jennifer Stoll, who hasn't known you for a long time, but you've bonded. And uh, we've referred to Jennifer several times here. Um, She's also deeply into horse whisperers, into opera, into the Episcopal tradition, uh, having also been raised in some privilege and uh, escaped from it um, through also life-threatening experiences. So, um, Jennifer, as you've come to know Christina and have listened to the conversation so far, what does it evoke for you? Mm. Gratitude. Mm. So, deep gratitude. Because when we can speak honestly about these experiences, dark ones and light, we, we speak to everyone. Yeah. Darkness and light. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, what's ever been given to us that we express is everyone's here. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea at the beginning that that might become true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'll just say I so identify with Persephone in your life and mine. I know we knew us, knew each other there in that darkness. Yeah. Okay. Um, and also, I'm grateful to say, know ourselves now out of that darkness. Yeah. And um, that recognition of each other for all of us in the times we're in is so central to all of us surviving as best we can without our spirits being broken. Mm-hmm. It's a great source of strength, is what I'd say. So, um, I'm just very grateful mm-hmm. for the friendship and Michael, the introduction and the conversation this morning. That this, yeah. like the developing Polaroid, which is how I identify myself. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. It's yeah, right yeah. in my hand, those old ones. We watch mm-hmm. and watch for something to get clearer and clearer and see ourselves eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those developing Polaroid mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. For all of this, which yeah. is a high, high mm-hmm. compliment from me. So thank you. You know, you bring up something for me, Jennifer. One of the things that the psychopath was really good at was saying profoundly true statements. Mm-hmm. And it's what made him a psychopath. And, and one of them was, the biggest lie is that I'm alone. And isn't it true that, that for you and me, for the two of us to sit there in the War Memorial Opera House, taking in the ring, 
weeping and gasping and trembling and holding hands and fixed and not fixed. We are not alone. It's, we have our particular view. You know, it's a, an early ring for you. It's an old ring for me. But we are absolutely not alone in our individual responses to something greater than ourselves. And to me, that is... Boy, that I got to be 66 years of old and know that, and that you and your life know the same thing, boy, that works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Barrows, as you were just listening to uh, Christina say she was not alone, and you held your daughter's hand. You're her daughter, right? Daughter of heart. Excuse me? Daughter of heart. Oh, daughter of heart. But as you've listened to this, any reflections um, from you from all your years of wisdom? Total identification uh-uh. with her experiences yeah. and feeling of such abundance from you, abundance of heart. Thank you. Mm. Um, Oh, so much. I'm wordless, really. Mm. Thank you. Oren Slosberg, as uh, you've come to know Christina and listen to this, what does it evoke for you? Well, I was thinking as you're describing the new land, and there's um, the movement from living on a mountain overlooking Santa Fe down into a cauldron. Yeah. with a dried arroyo that runs through. Yeah. Um, and also talking about kind of the next, there's something about a settling down and looking ahead into this stage of harvesting. Yeah. So kind of the stage in one's life when you've collected a lifetime of experiences and knowledge and wisdom. And I'm just curious about your reflections about what does a period of settling into that piece of land and looking at it in terms of kind of harvesting yeah. as like, what is learning, where, what's happening next? You know, um, Swamiji used to talk about the bindu. He said there's this one spot that's at the center of everything. The minute you've got two, you've got infinity. And all of our prayers and our meditations and our teachings are about single focus on the bindu. And so I feel like up until now, I've had more or less clear navigation with the bindu, either if not, if not in front of me, behind me, looking at me. And, and any number of experiences, more than most people ever get. And, you know, my kids worry about me that I'm so exposed. And I am exposed on that mountain. It's like I'm at the outer edges where there's a big wind and it's moving. And what I feel like um, is that I'm moving to the bindu, um, where, where I'm actually still at heart. Uh, one of the things that, that you didn't describe that um, is true of this land is, did I lose something? No, there we go. Is that um, my, I have line of sight of this petroglyph hill. And it's one of the more important archaeological sites in northern New Mexico. And nobody knows about it unless they know about it. And, and so if I stand still in my home, there is that. I feel less exposed. And it is, 
it's it's a crucible. It's also considered like to me like a, a woven basket. Uh, more more than a pottery basket, a woven basket, where where it can all be there with me, and um, so that's you know that that would be my reflection that that somehow the energy that it takes to fly and see and collect um, is is turning into a nest. I watched my daughter, who is of my ilk, seven also Enneagram, busy, busy girl. Mm -hmm. And as she got into the late stages of pregnancy, she did this nesting thing that we do. And there's a way that I feel that, Oren, that, that it's, it's like a, a nesting uh, with a hatch mark coming sometime. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Christina Flanagan and Michael Lerner. You know, I want to come back to uh, something I want to cover because I mentioned uh, your friends, the Horse Whisperers. And one of the things that strikes me is your deep relationship to your horses. Um, And... As you and my wife Charles were talking last night, your way of seeing human horse relationships as they should be and as you experience them, how would you describe that? Um, I was embarrassed after I said what I said because I did put a should on it, and I can be so dogmatic. Okay. It's so um, it's yeah, so, it's so embarrassing because yeah. yeah. I can make people wrong so easily when I've got this new fresh idea. It's 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 not a good trait. Um, but I will say that um, in the last three years of horsemanship, um, I have moved from a model where the horse is this magnificent animal that I get to do fun things with. Um, or that I get to heal from. Um has flipped, and I've begun to see uh, the predatory nature of that relationship. And horses are prey animals. So when I'm going toward them with the idea that I'm going to get something out of this visit with them, I'm the predator, they're the prey. They know how to be prey, and, and they will they will accommodate whatever I want. I saw a dreadful image this morning from the rodeo in Santa Fe that's going on right now. And this, you know, rider is, is being thrown by this mare. And I said to her, my first gut get, was, you get him, girl. You know, you just throw him away. So, so there's that. There's that predatory thing. Now I am more part of their herd where what interests me is not only their well-being, but to understand their specific requests and seeing how I can mold myself to that request. Now, that doesn't mean I don't ride them. I ride them all the time. But when I ride them, it is, uh, it's a Q&A that we go through around who wants to ride today. And, okay, well, the, 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 the tacking is up this way. Let's go together. You don't want to go? What do you want to do instead? What are you seeing? How can I help you? Because we're going riding. 
oh, okay, well, let's do it together. And they, uh, there's so much, there, there's so much more relaxed and grateful that someone's actually listening to them. That when we are on the trail and we do technical riding, we do difficult riding, they're showing me, hey, mama, look what I can do. Or, don't worry, mom, I gotcha. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't let you fall off for nothing. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. And, and so it is from speaking to listening that we have moved. And uh, my relations with my herd are enviable at any level. People, people are amazed at what we can, how we are with each other. Mm-hmm. And what's been really nice, Michael, I have this young family that helps me out so that I can travel and be other places. And there's a, a young boy in this family. And so the dad and the boy are taking, have been taking care of my horses the last six weeks. And they listen to the horses. They have no prior knowledge of horsemanship. But because the horses know that they will be heard, they've become exquisite communicators. Mm-hmm. And these guys can work with them in the way that the horse is like. Mm. And, and, and the should in it for me is, wouldn't it be a nice world where people practice listening as much as they practice talking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any other questions for Christina? Yeah, Bill. Thank you for such a story, mm. sharing it. Uh, third husband, you must have had such a mixture of emotions on his death. Mm-hmm. Did you honor his death? What did you do with that? <laughs> well, it's, I will say the first thing that I uh, felt when I heard the news was huge relief. Mm-hmm. That neither I nor any other woman, because he'd been through several over the seven years from our last sighting to his death, would be harmed by this monster. And I stayed with that for a long time. It happened on the day that I packed up my bags and left my home and moved to Bolinas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day that I took occupancy of the house on Terrace. So that wasn't lost on me. Um, I do not honor him. He was a monster. Um, he couldn't help it. He has, he has a chart as bad as Hitler's, frankly. He has the most frightening chart I've ever seen. And um, creatures like that exist. I honor the God that brought us together and saved my life. But he is anathema. I have no, um, I have no sentimentality towards him at all. Um, I honor his mother who uh, lost four boys to drugs and alcohol suicides, her entire family, who lived with a brutal man uh, that she had to call husband and love because she was a Bible-reading Baptist. I honor uh, the Native American people that I work with uh, where I live on healing uh, because my husband was a quartered Choctaw Chickasaw and carried that pain with him into our lives. Uh, but no, he, he was a plague 
And there's nothing that I can say honorable about someone who was entirely dishonorable. Was there a service for him? No, as far as I know, no, because uh, the, 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 we had a mutual friend who called me and told me about the death. And um, that friend's wife was one of this man's victims. And I think she dealt with all of that. Um, but yeah, I honor his memory as uh, when I look at the news. And I, I, I know what's, what's good and what isn't good. And I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not at all unclear about that. <laughs> you know, there are, there's evil out there. And I lived with it for quite a while. Diana? Did you manage to kill the red, um, withdraw from him seven years before he killed himself? Yeah. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah. But you managed that on your own. Yeah. Well, like I say, I like any other story of madness and awakening, I woke up one day and I realized that he was going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was able to marshal, he was going to burn the house down with me in it because he was an arsonist as a child and he had worked this out. And so I, uh, I got away, I got him away. And then I paid the price for that for several years. Yeah, alimony goes for women as well for men. Or for men as well for men. I, I paid a lot of alimony to that guy. <laughs> Last question, Wonderful. Well. Then I get to close with you, Christina, over the last 15 minutes, which I really like. Um, May I? Yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Remember how you were reflecting upon um, predator and prey uh-huh. and understanding yourself as the predator, sociopath, right. narcissist, right. et cetera. Yes, yeah. um, and then I, I'm wondering, it's like with how much love, deep understanding that, that um, gets expressed as compassion when you're understanding that you could be him. Mm-hmm. And so then in the wake of that, it's like how to, I know intellectually I can forgive mm-hmm. and understand that these roles are played because of... Mm-hmm. Right? <clears throat> this is the way it is here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's the bindu mm-hmm. and the duality. Right. And so then how do I remain in the middle of that and, and um, remove myself from the prey and at the same time um, remove his identity as the predator right. so that in the wake of his, when he releases this form and goes back into the right. greater part of who he is, how do we honor him there? Well, I don't. I don't feel it's my part. My part to honor Hitler, or my my third husband, or any other evil person. I don't. And if, However, if he had been your father of your children. Oh, wouldn't that have been a mess? Well, I know, but I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Can you please help me? Yeah, no, I'm glad. To, I know. I, I'm no. I'm very glad to help you. I'm very glad to help you. There's a. There's a. I'll, I'll start with a story. It's a Hindu story. So there's these two wise guys these, uh, that are hanging out with the, with, the, uh, with the Maharaji. And the Maharaji is asking them, well, how do you live? 
And so they're getting the, the, the truth about things and forgiveness and all these good things. And they're walking in the forest. And a tiger jumps out. And the, the, the Vedantin jumps in the tree. And the other guy gets eaten. And the, the Maharaja says, well, well, what happened here? Isn't everything just a dream? He says, yes. The dream tiger ate the dream astrologer, did not eat this dream astrologer because the dream astrologer found the dream tree. <laughs> so there can never be honoring of evil, of cruelty, what we've seen in the last 10 days. You, there is no universe where that can be honored or, or accepted. So then we take it in the matter of And so we say, we say, that's in me too. I'm the one who abandoned the daughter, not the perpetrator, right? I'm the one. I did that. He said it was a good idea. He congratulated me, but I did it. We do not honor that. We say it's true. And it shows me that I have free will, which is the great gift. You know, what it, the, the gift of human, as far as we know, is this free will thing that I can choose to be in a, uh, a destructive situation or I can choose to do what is ever necessary or possible to shield myself and my loved ones from it, whatever it takes. And so that's, so that's the answer to the question. I know that this person, this entity now gone, thank God, is a spirit who lives in freedom from his aching body. I had a stepmother that was a close second to this guy. And she was no friend of mine because she was evil and dangerous. And I could even make the case that I've, I met him because I was trying to work out stuff with her. I don't know what the psychology is, though I do. But that's another conversation. I know she's free. I'm so glad she's free. I'm so glad this guy isn't causing suffering. And isn't, and isn't making suffering for himself because he would, he would cry like a baby in my arms for the relief of our, of our unity. But that's as far as it goes. You know, I make choices today based on principles, not on my needs. In those days, I made choices based on my needs which were to be held and told I was beautiful and that I was sexy and I was wonderful. And I would pay anything for that, including my children. I don't do that anymore. Because I figured it out that I have a choice. And so that's the answer to me, to your question, is there's no honoring cruelty, ever. There's acknowledging it, forgiving it, and getting on with the business of being one of God's children, which is to be loving and, and gracious and kind. Hope that helps. Welcome. What haven't I asked you or what haven't you said that you would like to say before we end? Oh, that's so good. While you reflect on that, let me just say a couple of things. 
I have experienced this as an extraordinarily beautiful conversation. I uh, um, Extraordinarily. And I want you to remember that, you know, when I asked you to do this, and, and you said, well, because you know we do a number of well-known people and this, mm -hmm. that, and the other. And you said, you know, what have I got to offer? I said, what have you got to offer? I said, in fact, some of the best ones we do are with people who've lived half-hidden lives or in entirely hidden lives. Because famous people, God bless them, and I do bless mm -hmm. them because they're amazing. But they have to deal with the public persona that they've created, mm -hmm. which is limiting. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this wonderful line from Hannah Arendt, the great political philosopher that I always loved. She said, private faces in public places are much nicer than public faces in private places. Yeah, that's you know? true. And so there's this thing that when you have to carry that public persona is mm -hmm. limiting. And it's one of the deep reasons why I've always tried to lead a half-hidden life so that I didn't have to cart that around with right. me, you right. know, any more than was absolutely necessary. But my experience is that, that and I, I believe this conversation is such a beautiful example, that some of absolutely the most profound, beautiful conversations have been with friends uh, that very few people know about, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I hope you feel that about the conversation today. Well, you know, in response, the first thing that, as you were asking the question, the first thing that, that came up for me, Michael, is the miracle of our friendship. Yeah. Uh, you know, we met through Anne and George Hogel, mm -hmm. and um, a Jungian analyst and a fine, fine painter who had my home before I got it. And I've always considered you my brother. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so what I would wrap up with is to, to challenge everyone um, to be sure they, they know how important it is to know who your family is mm -hmm. so that you, they're not far away. Mm -hmm. You're never far away from me. Mm -hmm. We see each other four times a year, maybe. Mm -hmm. This year we did well, probably saw each other five times. Mm -hmm. But Michael is always uh, my brother. Mm -hmm. We pick up exactly like brother and sister pick up. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I told you, I, I, have, I had a dear friend, Jane Bernstein, who died um, this February uh, of, a, of a brain tumor. And she came to me about six weeks ago. I was in my kitchen in New Mexico. And she was a very pretty woman. She had lots of curly white hair and very piercing brown eyes, very beautiful face, very chiseled face. And she looks at me and she says, Christina, from now on, do only what's important. Mm -hmm. Emphasis, right? Essential. Essential. Mm -hmm. And so, my friendship with Michael is one of those essential things in my life. And everybody's got theirs. And they might be more than you think they are. So I think to do inventory on what's essential in your life would be the main thing that we did not cover because we don't need to. But I know I, can, I take a look at that on a regular basis. What's essential in my life? Am I living in communication with that? And if I do that, I'm good to go. 
I think that's what Satchitananda was talking about. That's certainly what Dayananda. In fact, can I say one chant at the end? Yes, please. So when I do the Rudram at the end, the Rudram... We'll, we'll do a little silence at the end of the That'd be great. Then we'll so, so the Rudram is about a 15-minute chant that I thought I could never learn, which I did learn. And I do it every morning. And at the end of the Rudram, it, well, it's, it's a chant to all the evilness in the world. It's Shiva's thousand faces, all the stuff that's tough. It chants to bless all that stuff. And sometimes you wonder why you're doing it. And at the end of the Rudram, um, there is this uh, chant that maybe some of you know called the Mrtunjaya. And the Mrtunjaya is a prayer for the sick and the dying. And it's that we should all live such a full life that when it comes time to part, that like the pumpkin, the vine itself pulls away. The pumpkin never moves. Mm. Right? That's his vision. So we can close with the Rudram, the Mrtunjaya. If you know it, you can say it. And I repeat it three times because that's how it's done. Om. Triamakaya tamahe sakanting pushti bardanan Urvarukami papandanan Richor bukshim hatmamta utter Triamakaya tamahe sakanting pushti bardanan Urvarukami papandanan Richor bukshim Mrityor Mukshi Abhamrata Uttu Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Hari Om Tatsat Let's just go into the silence for a few moments. Peace, peace. Christina Flanagan, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, dear. So thank you all for being with us for what I found was a most extraordinary uh, experience of, of community with one of our beloved Bolinas friends. And um, just so grateful to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Christina Flanagan and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.